It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. Today's guest returns for his second time on the show, author of the Great Coat series, including Traitor's Blade, Night Shadow, and his latest, Saint's Blood. Currently residing in Vancouver, B.C. with his wife and two cats, the Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Sebastian DeCastell back to the show. Sebastian! Hey! Thanks for having me. Long time no chat. I know, it's been ages. Ages? It's been actually about one year. Since you were last on the show, last time you came on, we talked about the Great Coat series, we talked about your background in music, we got to hear live Celtic Whistle, which was awesome. I hope you brought another instrument along today to uh, bless our ears with some fine music. Uh, I think you might have a harp- harpsichord on hand, is what I heard, so we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, but much fun was had, actually, on the last episode, so people can check the show notes to listen to the show if they want to check it out. But it was probably one of the funnest episodes that we've ever done, and a lot of time when people say, let me listen to your show, what's a great episode I should check out? I usually refer them to the Sebastian DeCastell interview, because it was tons of fun. So bring us up to speed what's been going on in, in DeCastell land. Well, let's see. Since I last saw you guys, I've had, uh, you know, all the usual sort of uh, publishing shenanigans of, uh, you know, books coming up and, and book deals. And, and uh, I got, you know, nominated for a few awards that, uh, of course, I, I quite deservedly lost. Uh, although, you know, not to Brian Stavely this time. So that's OK. We've talked about that before. I've made that clear to Brian. He's, he's allowed to beat me once, but that's got to be it. Um, and, uh, my wife and I and our two uh, cats, of course, uh, moved back from the Netherlands, uh, to Vancouver, which was, uh, quite an adventure in and of itself. And, uh, and mostly just uh, writing, you know, um, it takes me, uh, longer and longer to write each book for some reason. So, uh, and I have, uh, you know, six books coming up in the Spellslinger series. So that's quite a lot to write. And I'm wrapping up the great coat series and then uh you know when you're when you're a working writer you have to uh always have your next series kind of planned out and and starting to be developed and so you're constantly um trying to stay ahead of the curve and just you know constantly trying to become a better writer so that's my life for the most part that and a few really weird rock and roll gigs but (laughs) (laughs) yeah you've got a beatles gig coming up next week right yeah i have to do i have to do john lennon for a beatles show um which is which is always fun. Uh, the funny thing about when you play in Beatles bands is, it, it, you know, because there's a lot of them. It's it's sort of like a little cottage industry, right? Of of Beatles tribute shows, but more and more the audience for those shows have just grown older over the decades. So the first time I ever played in a Beatles show, you know, I was playing for you know whatever forty fifty year olds, like you know pretty cool people. Now the shows are all for septuagenarians. So you just you're just there and you're looking at the oldest sea of faces that you've ever seen. And they're all really cool. Like they're all, they dance and they're excited. Like you sort of, it makes you optimistic for, for, uh, for your autumn years. Um, Cause you're like, ah, you know, it's okay. I'll still be able to like go to a casino in the middle of the afternoon and eat at a pasta bar and, and get up and <laughs> dance. And, and they all like, they love, they all, we make really off, not off color jokes, but sort of, uh, you know, slightly racy jokes, implying that they're all going off to have sex afterwards. And they just love that. So, <laughs> you know, and then, uh, and then next Saturday, I think I, I have to, I'm playing a, an eighties gig. So I'm playing with an eighties band. And so it's all different material, like, you know, flock of seagulls and aha and all this stuff. And then, um, and then the week after that, I have to prep for a show uh, with a cars, uh, tribute where I have to play all of these really weird Greg Hawks uh, keyboard parts. And I'm like a terrible keyboard player. Like I only get, I only do do it well because I just practice over and over and over and over again so that it's all muscle memory. 
it's like a weird reflex. You know, it's like those, um, you know, those like uh, really trained uh, military fighters, like Krav Maga guys, like you tap them on the shoulder wrong and they like turn around and stab you in the throat. Like I'm like that, except you tap me in the shoulder wrong. And suddenly I play the solo for like the, in my life by the Beatles. <laughs> it's not a good self-defense tactic. I'm just saying I got good muscle memory. That's all. Well, if we ever encounter you in, in uh, real life, I'll have to tap you on the shoulder and see if you, you start, start doing that. Cause that would exactly. be a quite a sight to see, I think. Yeah, exactly. Well, we still got to form our uh, Celtic flute heavy metal band. So I actually get terrified when you guys refer to me playing Celtic flute because I'm, you know, that I'm awful, right? Like I'm, I'm terror. I was, I was learning Celtic flute just to learn something new uh, to challenge myself. But I'm, but I'm objectively, objectively terrible. But I think we have a cool, we have a cool band name now because I really like when you said oldest sea of faces. That sounds like a like a cool indie band name. We just need a bunch of uh, millennial hipsters to like be in the foreground and we'll be off stage playing. But yeah, because yeah, oldest sea of faces. Doesn't that sound like a band of hipsters? Out of all the 80 co- 80s covers that you play, what's your least favorite 80s song that you have to play that you're forced to perform? I think so. There, it's actually a good song. But the first show I played with this band, they wanted they wanted me to play and sing a song called Turning Japanese. So I mentioned that for Phil. So I don't know. It's. It has nothing to do with being Japanese. It has to do with the expression you make when you're, you know, when someone's masturbating. So it was a, it's an oddly, faintly racist kind of song to play, but it was, and it wasn't a big hit in the eighties. And so suddenly I'm on stage and there's all these people and, uh, you know, and it's in Vancouver, which is a very um, diverse community. And I'm playing, singing, turning Japanese. And, and the, like the chorus is like, just goes, turning Japanese. I think I'm turning Japanese. I really think so. And it's like this thing over and over and over again. And this group of like three uh, young women, um, all of whom were, I think they were probably uh, uh, Korean actually, but they're just staring at me like, and it's, it's not even like angry. They're just kind of pitying me. Just like, wow, dude, that's really weak. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty weak. But uh, that one's actually, what's the what's the worst one I got to play um, for this show? I shouldn't say this because then somebody <laughs> will find out and then I'll be in trouble. But um, so the, the Flock of Seagulls had a big hit called I Ran. There's something depressing about singing it. You know, because you're just like, and I ran, I ran so far. And it's just like, oh, my God, I'm so sad. Like, I just kept running. So. Yeah, that one's probably the worst. Well, one thing that you're you're doing quite well when people aren't making mean faces at you when you're playing live music is your writing is uh, doing quite well. Um, Saints Blood came out last April. Uh, Great Coats number three in the series, so it's uh, four books in the series. Is is your plan right? Yeah, there's four books in the series. There's 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 been as there always is with a a series that 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 sells well. There's been many discussions of like. How about we make it nine books instead? Let's wheel of time this thing. <laughs> but uh, but I I have resisted that. I think it's important to uh, to have an endpoint for uh, poor Falcio, and to um, you know and uh, so there's discussions about another great coat series. But but I've I'm leaning towards that being with um, with somewhat different characters because you have to be able to tell different stories, and uh, I can't just keep torturing Falcio you know for 600 pages every year. <laughs> So for folks who aren't up to speed on maybe the Great Coat series, maybe give us a little teaser about what's in Saint's Blood, the story that's told, and what readers can expect from book three in the series. 
Sure. So the Great Coat series is a, it's a swashbuckling fantasy series. It's it's got some aspects of if you think of uh, the Three Musketeers meets Game of Thrones is a is a pretty good way to look at it. And the third book in the series, Saints Blood, starts with uh, the the uh, apparent murder of a saint, which uh, for Falcio, who is the head of the Great Coats, which is this group of uh, traveling magistrates whose, whose job it was to sort of investigate the crimes and enforce the laws across a, a, a very sort of feudalistic uh, kingdom. It's kind of a problem because he doesn't even know how anybody would have the power to, to kill a saint. So saints in this world are sort of human beings who are who have somehow elevated themselves in some very particular area. So the saint of swords is the most powerful sword fighter in, in in the world and things like that. And so he's not even sure how that happens. And as he starts to investigate, he finds out that more saints have actually been killed and that somebody is doing this intentionally. Uh, and that's problematic because the woman that he loves uh, ends up becoming a saint. And so he uh, is now terrified of the prospect that somebody very powerful is clearly planning on killing off all the saints, including the woman that he loves. And, um, and so it deals with the notions of, you know, within the context of a swashbuckling fantasy story, it's dealing with notions of faith and idealism and notions of of the law and whether, you know, whether you're bound to obey the laws of human beings or bound to obey the you know, religious laws. And uh, and there's a big cane fight. That's like when senators used to, like, fight each other, right? Like, there's a famous story about a senator that beat the shit out of this other senator with a cane. Yeah, well, there's a couple of uh, American politicians who uh, who challenged each other to duels back in the old days, which is kind of funny because dueling was almost always illegal. There was rarely a time where duels were were actually legitimate. Saints Blood deals a lot with the notion of dueling um, because Falcio sort of sees the world through the lens of of dueling because that's what he's had to do for so much of his life, and so he's all the way through this book asking himself like, "What happens if I have to duel a god?" Um, you know, how, how do you possibly win something like that? And ultimately, you find the answer to that. Uh, I'm still reading Trader's Blade. And uh, if I haven't finished that one, is it possible to read the other stories or is it a continuous? It's a continuous story all throughout. Uh, it's both. So it's a continuous story all throughout. There's there's series long questions that, that you're trying to find out. But I'm very, very careful when I write. I spend a ton of time on the on the opening chapters of each of the books. Partly because I want people to be able to get back into the world without having to go back and reread everything. So I've, I've had some people who just pick up Saint's Blood off of a bookshelf and started reading it. And you can find your way through. I've gotten pretty good at making it possible for someone to find out what's going on without having to have read the previous books. And it's not just because I want people who, not to read you know, Traders Played, I want, I, I prefer people to read the whole series. But even if you have read the whole series, uh, you know, it, it's a year between books. And I don't, I've never liked it as a reader where I pick up the third book in a series or, and, and I don't quite remember what's going on. And I, you know, that sense of disconnection is, isn't very pleasant. So I try to make it so that you can come to it pretty fresh. Yeah, I definitely recommend folks pick up Traders Blade. That was the finalist for the Gamel Morningstar Award where you were robbed, unfortunately, from uh, Brian Stavely, but we won't mention that. Again, also, Night Shadow was ranked number two out of 50 for Fantasy Faction's top books of 2015, so it's not like people are not loving each book in this series as well, and everybody who comments on it on social media and stuff just absolutely loves the series. So I recommend everybody 
pick up a copy as well of get Saints Saints Blood, Traitor's Blade, Night Shadow, and then Tyrant's Throne. You're working on that presently. Is that still the title for book four? That is the title for book four, yes. It's uh, Tyrant's Throne comes out in April, and um, yeah, I really should have had it written by now. <laughs> so... <laughs> That, that, yeah, that one's taking me a long time. It's a ton of work to try to uh, to to really cap off a series. I was at Worldcon recently, and I asked uh, David Gerald, who's you know, is you know, one of the great uh, fantasy and science fiction writers of all time. And um, I was like, "Hey, any advice? Like, how do I finish this thing?" And and he had some he had some good advice, which was like, "You just got to really focus on on saying what's the last thing, what's the last question I want to explore in this world." You know, like, why did you why did you put together this world and what are you trying to explore with it? And so for me, you know, the world of the Great Coats is very much about questions about idealism and friendship, which are things that are really important to me. So Tyrant's Throne is sort of dealing with those questions and, and the last questions that I sort of have to explore inside of that series. Well, one, one other thing that's cool about you as a person altogether is you have a really great website and you have this feature called the Secrets of the Great Coats where fans can get extra content. You can take a Great Coats quiz and you have all sorts of cool shit like that. Cool maps. How important do you think offering this bonus content is? I try to put some of that stuff together when I can because because I think it's kind of fun. And we've all had the experience where you read a book and maybe you really enjoyed the book and the world of the book and you just kind of want something a little more. And, and you just kind of want to play in that world a little more in your in your head. Now, I don't mean in terms of video games, but uh, but just to explore a bit. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do with that. I remember there was a there's a great site for George R. R. Martin's books, I think, called uh, Westeros.org. Yeah. And where you can look up like just some of all the insane amount of detail that's in that series. Uh, and I think that's really fun for people to to be able to just not it's not about reliving the story it's just about remembering little pieces of the story that you enjoy by looking at it through that different filter so for me you know people think about the great coats and and what it would be like to be a great coat and so we have this thing called the the great coat seal generator where you you can go and and ask you're asked certain questions and then it sort of gives you what your great coat seal would be you know, like your, your mark. And so it's just, it's just fun things like that. And it's, it's mostly just to kind of create a connection with the audience. I'm, I'm at a stage where, you know, generally speaking, you know, most of my publishers do a pretty good job of promoting the series. And so it's not for me about trying to um, sell more books uh, because I don't, I, I think it's very difficult for an author's website to actually cause people to buy books. You don't generally think I want a book. I'll go to a random author's website and see if they have something like it. We don't discover books that way. Um, but what you do have happen is, is you, uh, you enjoy something and then you kind of want to find out a little bit more. And so that's what I'm trying to do is just create a, a vehicle for people to be able to play a little bit more in, inside of that sandbox. It is a well-composed author site. I mean, as far as author websites go, some of them are not as uh, up-to-date or fancy as others, but uh, your website has lots of cool gadgets and graphics, and it's uh, very professional, very well done. So you've spared no expense on the website. I, I, I did, in fact, spare no expense because I, <laughs> I, I designed it myself, which took me forever. I don't know why, but I just couldn't find anything that I liked a lot. 
as a as a sort of a you know typically you find a template you throw some some graphics on it and so i spent forever trying to put this together a friend of mine's a great designer and she um she helped me work out the you know the the author logo and stuff like that but just dealing with layout and all that stuff i used to i used to head a design program at vancouver film school so it's it's not like i'm not somewhat experienced with the world of design but trying to build an author site that's just kind of has some meaning for readers uh can be a bit of a trick I like how Phil opened that question. It's one of the things that's good about you as a human being. It's your website. <laughs> it's like, it's reminded me of that debate question between uh, with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I like, say something nice about your opponent. And uh, I think she said, he's got a nice family. I just try to, I want to make you feel good. <laughs> I, I feel great. Thanks. In many ways as possible. And by the way, I did the great coats quiz. Yeah. And my uh, my color is black appropriately because yeah. uh, my soul is black and the horse symbolizes my endurance. So fun fill fact, Philip actually means lover of horses. Wow. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, it just I tell you, the great coat seal generator doesn't lie. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. That's another great thing about you. Oh, and other and, and unlike J.K. Rowling's Pottermore site. You can retake the Great Coats quiz because I got to say, when you first take that Pottermore quiz and it tells you that you're going to be Hufflepuff for the rest of your life and you can't go back and change that, it's it's a pretty depressing experience. Why does no one want to be Hufflepuff? What's wrong with Hufflepuff? Everything's wrong with Hufflepuff. It's terrible. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, it's like there's, I guess, four different houses in there. There's Gryffindor, which sounds awesome and is awesome. And then there's, you know, Ravenclaw, which is like, okay, that's kind of cool if you're goth. <laughs> and then there's like Hufflepuff, which is the kids get picked last for the baseball team. <laughs> and then Slytherin, which are the kids that are, you know, evil. The, the rotten ones. <laughs> yeah, so the, evil, the evil kids. It's, it's not exactly one of those things where you're like, oh, cool. I could be any of these four cool things. There's like the really good one. And then there's like the really crappy ones. So there you go. Another thing on your website that I think is cool, you have a section called Champions where you talk about if you're really into an author, here are some steps you can follow to really help them out and get the word out about them. And you have pre-ordering the books is a big deal and writing reviews and then sharing by word of mouth, which often in the group Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers, uh, people said that one of the biggest ways that they find new authors is word of mouth. So what would you say to encourage readers that that aren't as active in doing this kind of thing? Maybe they read your books and they really like them, but they don't really go out and review or they're not big into the social aspect of sharing information about books they enjoy. What would you say mm -hmm. to encourage them to champion their favorite author? Uh, well, I probably wouldn't uh, because I, I don't think... Honestly, I don't think it's a reader's job to promote authors. You know what I mean? Like I don't, they don't, a reader doesn't owe you anything but a moment of their time, you know, mm -hmm. to, to give your book a try. Well, they don't even really owe you that. Um, the reason I put the champion section up is that there's, I keep running into readers and they'll say things like, oh, I just love the books, you know, what can I do? And, and they'll, they'll, I've, I've had people email me to like, say, do you have like a, a PayPal tip jar, which I had to look up what that was. 
or they'll say, oh, I read your book at the library and, and, I, and I love it. Um, so, you know, I'll buy a copy. Don't worry. You don't have to do that. Like if you want to really support an author, which and that's where it's coming from, is just a lot of readers today seem like they want to figure out how to support authors because they hear about the, you know, that the book business is a tough business and they hear about, you know, declining author salaries and all this kind of stuff. And they, they just want to support it. So for me, it was like, well, look, you know, it's I would rather you. Uh, you know, rather than you feeling guilty or trying to find a tip jar or something, <laughs> you know, just go write a review or go, you know, t- tell a few people about it or take a photo of yourself with your favorite book or and, you know, not just for me, but do it for whatever authors you love. You know, I'm I'm in a pretty lucky spot, right? The, the Generally speaking, like the books have done pretty well. I make my living writing novels. Um, but there are a lot of writers that are not quite as fortunate and this is something I didn't understand before because I would look at books on the shelf and I just assumed that if I saw a book on the shelf that the writer must be successful because I'm like, oh, this has a cool cover and, you know, I've, I've read about them and I've seen some reviews, so they must be doing okay. And, and of course, often they're not. And so one thing I do tell people is if you is if you have new authors, especially where you find the books and you really like them, you going out and writing reviews or are you going out and spreading the word? could mean the difference between you getting to read more of their books or not, because like I say, you know, it, it can be a tough business for people and not everybody gets kind of lucky on the first try, but if they build a, a core fan base and what I mean by a core fan base is people who go out and talk about their books, then there's a chance that, that publishers will say, well, we'll, you know, we'll give it another try. And, and, and sometimes you're going to get, you know, amazing, amazing uh, books that way. There's a, t- a ton of writers whose first several books were flops but in the past, it was easier for a publisher to stick with a, an author because primarily they were thinking about the quality of the book. And they just thought, look, this person's a great writer. Eventually, they're going to break. Eventually, they'll, they'll have their you know, Game of Thrones or, or their, uh, you know, whatever else uh, the, the book happens to be that, that launches them to the wider uh, audience. So, it's, so that's what that's about uh, for me more than anything else. And, um, and it's great when it happens, and, but you know, I don't expect people to, to do it. And, and, and I don't try to I don't really try to convince people because, you know, look, you don't owe a book or an author anything. Uh, you, you buy it, you give it a try. And it's it's my job as a writer to keep you interested and keep you turning the page. And if I stop doing that, then that's OK. Right. There's so many books out there. We're constantly inundated with new choices. And you start reading a book and, and maybe it captures your interest or maybe it doesn't right away and do you just stick with it in order to be you know a good human being um <laughs> and so i'll you know i just uh, i was just reading a book that um i i you know it was well written and i i i went like 50 percent of the way through but eventually i hit a point where where i i realized like i don't I, I could keep reading the book, but I'm not going to care by the end at this point. Like, I know that whatever happens, I'm not going to care that much about the characters or wh- what happens to them. And if that's how you feel, it's it's there's nothing wrong with just putting the book down. It's the author's job to keep you interested all the way through early on by being by having, you know, great prose and compelling characters. And then as the book goes on by having, you know, strong themes and 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 things that make you feel like, you know what, it's worth my while to finish this book. You know, it's it's never just I'm going to get to the end of the story, but that I'm going to get to the end of a question that's interesting to me, that's important to me. A number of writers that I that I read in fantasy specifically, sometimes when I pick up a fantasy novel, 
I get disappointed when I find out that the book is nothing is about nothing other than fantasy. You know, it's not really exploring something compelling because where fantasy, I think, is at its best is when it uses that other setting, that other world, those other types of characters to explore something that is actually meaningful to us today. Say for me, the you know, Trader's Blade was really about idealism versus cynicism, right? Like I was writing that because I was interested in the way that people were not just becoming more cynical, but becoming almost hostile to people who were still very idealistic. You know, like you see the idealistic young, you know, university students like, we're gonna change the world. And then people are like, yeah, shut up. You're wrong. <laughs> You're a loser. You're everything that's wrong with the world. And you're like, well, oh, my God, what's happening to us? You know, or in the 2004 election, you know, John Kerry's this, you know, former war hero. And all of a sudden they managed to turn that against him with the whole swift boating thing. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, he wasn't really a hero. He's a liar. And you're just like, wow, like what's going on? So that's what Trader's Blade was about for me. Um, and Night Shadow, the sequel to it, is about idealism versus uh, versus pragmatism, you know, about, you know, because often we have this sort of ends, the ends justify the means perspective about about the world. And Saint's Blood is is about idealism and faith. Like, you know, to what degree uh, are you supposed to kind of stand up to, to your ideals if your, uh, you know, your religious perspective or, or you know, other things that we take on almost as religious perspectives if if they um, contradict that. So so that's what books are to me. That's that's what makes me want to keep reading a book is where. It's fun and it's exciting and interesting and all those sort of things. But that at a certain point, you're like, oh, there's something that's being explored here that's interesting. And so like, if you're reading a book and, and whether it's Trader's Blade or anything else, if you don't feel that way, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, I'm done with this book. I'm going to try something else. So let's talk about Spellslinger. Yeah. That is your forthcoming YA fantasy series slated for 2017-ish. Is there a month that you have planned for that to drop or? Yeah, it's uh, it's supposed to drop uh, May 2017. It'll have a big splash. And there's already a preview page up at your website, so people can go to uh, decastell.com is your website, and lots of links there. But you do have a website up for Spellslinger. You've got an audiobook read by Sebastian Decastell himself. Great read on that, Mr. Narrator. Yeah, you've got, got an, an excerpt uh, on on the website there, and you, you voiced that. Well done on the uh, narration there. Thanks. I, I, I worked very hard on my Phil Overby accent for uh, Rikus, uh, the animal. So it's actually funny that, that you mentioned that. So because <laughs> this is a world exclusive here on Grim Tidings podcast. This is the first. Feel this. Yeah. The raccoon's not a raccoon anymore. <laughs> it's. Oh, cool. The raccoon's now a squirrel cat. And so I actually have to go back and redo all that stuff because that decision got made after we had done all of that work. Oh, no. Yeah. So um, I'll do the squirrel cat voice if you want me to. Hey, man, that, that, I, you know, that, could, that could be really good. The um, yeah, it's a funny thing. Um, so they're doing a huge, huge push on um, Spellsinger. So, uh, you know, I've already picked out which private Gulfstream jet I want to buy off of the, the earnings from it. And uh, so when I first wrote Spellsinger, the very first version of Spellsinger, which is actually now going to be book five in the series, that was in t 2011 or so. It was 2010, 2011. I started working on that. Uh, and then, of course, Guardians of the Galaxy came out. And, uh, and it was a huge hit. And so when the publishers bought the book, I was like, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy is a pretty big hit. And, um, you know, we, we might want to rethink the raccoon thing because it can create the wrong types of resonances for people where they start hearing somebody else's voice 
you know, when they're reading that character, just because they've been exposed to it so much in, in this other medium. And, and of course, you know, my publishers are wonderful, but being British, they're sort of like, uh, well, that's the cinema. That's different here. And of course it's not, of course it's huge everywhere. So, so eventually you're like, like actually, you know, we, we could make this change that actually makes the character even more kind of fun and more interesting. And so thus the squirrel cat was born. Uh, and so that's, uh, so I actually have to make a bunch of those changes, which, uh, uh, hopefully I will have done by the time this air is live, but now everyone will secretly know that it used to be a raccoon. It's, it's a fun world that way, right? Because everything's so cross media now that, that, you know, when you're writing a book, you know, you're, you're not just writing a book anymore. You're, you're considering the fact that, um, that they may want to make a movie, uh, which was one of the big factors here was just this, there were discussions around movies and, uh, and like, ah, oh, you know, you can't just, you know, you can't have Guardians of the Galaxy 2 drop and then all of a sudden Spellsinger comes out, you know, a movie with a, you know, with a talking raccoon. Um, especially because Rikus is, you know, fairly homicidal as raccoons go or uh, and now as a squirrel cat goes. So it's an interesting aspect. It's something that you wouldn't normally think about as a writer in the past that now in the 21st century you have to think about, which is most books either become massive successes or massive flops if they become massive successes all of a sudden you know movie rights become a big issue and so you have to consider what that's going to look like and what what else is coming out when those things are are or you know might be out on the uh in in theater screens spellslinger that was your big to do big like six figure contract that you had for like seven books or something or yeah, it's a it's an interesting contract. Yeah, I mean, Great Coats was a was a six figure deal too, although you know much more, just barely to to the six figures as we say. But but um, uh, Spellsinger is a really great deal because it, it was an eight book deal with um, a really terrific uh, publisher. I love the publishers for the the Great Coats, like Quirkus, uh well Joe Fletcher books specifically, mostly because Joe Fletcher is like the coolest person who's ever lived, and having Joe Fletcher as your editor is like it's like having a guarantee that your book will never suck because she just won't allow it to suck. But I love uh, Bo- uh, Bonnier too. And hotkey puts out uh, hotkey puts out like a lot of really great books. Like I, it's funny because I was thinking about books when we were talking about reading books and dropping books. Some of the only books I have not ever had an urge to drop recently was, was, re- was uh, when I was reading a bunch of the hotkey books, like, um, uh, we Were Liars by E. Lockhart is brilliant. And uh, The Girl from Everywhere by uh, Heidi Heilig. I just love that book. Um, but they basically bought an eight-book deal for me, six for Spellslinger and two for, they pretty much said, just write something and we'll publish it, <laughs> which, which was really just what else. So now, so now I'm, I'm, I'm working really hard to figure out what's the least marketable book possible uh, so that I can write that just to see if they're really serious about saying that they love my writing. You could write a biography for me. <laughs> the, the, the Phil Overby story. Yeah, that'd be pretty boring. I was uh, going to ask you what it, what is a squirrel cat exactly? I don't I don't know what that is. Is that well, a real thing? See there, you see that's that's how I picked squirrel cat was because when I tell people squirrel cat, they don't know for sure whether it's a real animal or not because <laughs> we have we have things like pole cats and uh, you know there's uh, there's even something called a bear cat which actually looks a lot like a raccoon. So, uh, squirrel cat. So no, uh, we created this, I created the squirrel cat for, for spell slinger. I was, I wanted something that encapsulated, uh, one of the things that's funny about that I like about Rikus is that Rikus is a relatively small animal who's convinced that his species are the apex predators of the animal kingdom. And so I wanted something that was, you know, on the edge of cute fish and yet strangely homicidal. So, um, 
So squirrel cat, it's kind of a, a type of a giant flying squirrel because we actually have, there actually are giant flying squirrels. They just found a few months ago, or I think, or maybe a year ago, a new species of giant flying squirrel that's four feet tall. So it's a giant flying squirrel that, that, that sort of has more, fe- slightly more feline features. Um, and they have some interesting qualities, like the, the fur changes color depending on the situation. And so there's lots of fun to be had with rikuses for changing color at inopportune times. So yeah, that's a squirrel cat. Basically a, a particularly nasty and homicidal uh, giant flying squirrel. We had a lot of debates about that, by the way. There was really fun debates about about the animal because they're going with this big global launch on, on this book. And they're like, ah, oh, you know, there's so I'd have people saying, well, you know, the thing is, uh, there's no you know squirrels in Australia. And so I would do all this research and I'd be like, ha, you're wrong. There were two <laughs> different species of squirrels introduced in Australia in the 18th century and one of them still around. So, yeah, it's a lot of you, you run into a lot of weird things like that in the 21st century when you're when you're dealing with a big book launch. There's all kinds of things where it's like, oh, no, in this market, we don't like this or we don't like that. <laughs> like when I remember when Trader's Blade was coming out in Germany and they were doing the covers and I love the German covers. But I sort of said, well, you know, they're a bit more like musketeer looking characters a little bit. And I remember uh, one of the people from the from the publisher said, you know, in Germany, we don't. Like people just don't like stuff to do with musketeers at all. Uh, and so they're like, I don't want that. You know, we don't, it's not a good look for the covers. Whereas the French cover traders play just totally embraces the whole musketeer. Look. So it's, it, there's just a lot of really odd issues to do with books that you just don't think about until you're, until you're sort of dealing with that strange level of people saying, well, you know, in China, they don't like this. And you're like, okay, but, but that's what I wrote. And it's like, well, could you write something else? <laughs> So, and, and, you know, the movie business is dealing with that much more pervasively, um, but it's, but it's coming to the book business too, because, you know, when, when they buy a book now, they're looking at the big picture, which is where can it go and how big can it go? And it's foreign rights are a huge factor, you know, Trader's Blade earned out before it was ever published on foreign rights deals. So like my advance paid out before before the book came out because they there were so many there were a few really good foreign rights deals i mean that's that's one of the nice things about a really great publisher one of the nice things about it you know if you've got the right publisher is that is that they get the book out in in lots of interesting places so in the case of the great coats books uh you know the trader's blade is out in bulgaria uh it's coming out in hungary it's it's out in french and german it's going to be out in polish i think like it's kind of really neat when all those things happen, but then it opens up all these other things. Like I had a, a, the translator for one of the editions contact me and say, you know, is it okay if I change Brassy Goodbow's name? Because if I just translate it, you know, straight over into our language, it reads incredibly strangely to the audience. Mm -hmm. So it's a weird world. Did you allow that change? Oh yeah. Were you like, no, it's Brasty. Yeah. Listen, you know, the thing is translators amaze me. Like the people who translate books amaze me because in order to translate a fiction novel, you have to have pretty much all of the skills to write fiction and more. There's an intense and very complex type of creativity involved in that. So when I hear from them, which isn't very often, they usually just do the job and 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 because they know what they're doing. Um, but when I do hear from someone who's translating the book into a foreign language or for, into a different language, I usually take what they say pretty seriously. Because like they're just they're really smart people. Like this is I could not to save my life translate a book. So I have a huge respect for them. I can't translate shit at all. So <laughs> I'm sure you could. Come on, Phil. You, you you must have pretty good Japanese by now, right? Uh, 
Skoshi dake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which means shitty. Yeah. Which means I'm shitty. Ik spreken beetje Netherlands. No, I don't spreken. Yeah. I speak a tiny bit of Dutch from from when I started learning Dutch when I was in the Netherlands. So, of course, when I say that to somebody, they often say that sounds more German than Dutch, and they're probably right. Let's face it, Phil, you and I were not meant to translate books. <laughs> yeah. We were meant to provide rock and roll joy to the world. <laughs> yes. Have you, since you have books in foreign markets, have you gotten reader feedback from from some country you never expected to get feedback from? Every once in a while I do. Uh, often, um, the, the sometimes it's tricky because if somebody writes to me uh, in their native language, I have to go to Google Translate. And so, you know, it ends up coming like out as, uh, I, I, you know, I, I read your book. Something is deeply wrong inside your heart with the blue fish. And you're like, <laughs> and so you have to like find somebody who, who says, no, no, no. They just said, they just said, I really love the way that you speak about these issues. And you're like, okay. Um, so then I put it, so I type in a Google translate and I'll be like, oh, thank you so much. It's really wonderful to hear. I'm working really hard on the next book. And then it comes out to them as like, I have come to kill your grandparents back in time. <laughs> so, They're like, wait, no, <laughs> then yeah. I'll cease to exist. I think there's a certain percentage of death threats in the world that are really just Google Translate errors. <laughs> from, that's where all the world's problems come from, or Google Translate. Actually, the scariest thing about Google Translate is I suspect that lots of translators are going to start using it to get through the bulk of the of the work and then and then just read it and fix as they go. Which just that quite terrifies me because you know in a fantasy novel there's all kinds of things that might be totally wrong but would look credible if you hadn't read it in the original language. So I'm always thrilled when I hear from anybody who likes the books because it means really that there's other people out there that like some of the things that I like. What was your elevator pitch for Spellslinger? Because, I mean, you got like a multi-global effort to get this new series out. So it must have been a pretty snapping idea when you brought it to your publisher. Well, I, I feel it's important to start by saying that multi-global would imply that it was a cross-monetary deal, which I, I just don't. I, I just don't want people to have an artificial sense of my status because I'm just not <laughs> that big. Um, so you know, Spellsinger, I had written the book first. So I, I had written Spellsinger and uh, and then went through a bunch of really weird moments in time where originally the first one I'd written was actually an adult uh, fantasy novel. And, you know, it takes place a few years from where the first book takes place. And then um, because The Great Coats was just coming out, there was sort of a feeling like, oh, you know, should we maybe be branching out a little bit? And then oddly, there was a publisher, quite a big publisher, had said they they really, really loved it. They said, well, would you consider doing a, a young adult trilogy for us um, with the character? And so I started exploring that. And I I didn't really have it at the time. And then they they just kept asking. For, I, I said, look, I'll give you an outline and and three sample chapters. And then they're like, Oh, could we have three more chapters and three more? And eventually it was like, look, you're just, you want me to write the whole book now, don't you? Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, could you do that? And it's like, no, like you can decide if you want the, the deal or not. So, um, and so it went through a bunch of permutations uh, or the possible deal. So it took a while, but it was always starting from, there was always something there. I think what appeals to people about Spellslinger, first of all, I think there's, you wouldn't think this was the case, but there's always an appetite for books about, 
learning magic. Uh, I don't know. I would have thought that that I would have thought that there's just built, you know, so many millions of books out there that already deal with that, that it wouldn't be a big deal. But it seems like that's not the case. Like it, it's part of it's always timing too. like when I when the when Trader's Blade came out, it, it happened to be at a time where people were somewhat craving uh, a type of heroic fantasy that wasn't especially sorry for using the word, but it wasn't especially grim. You know, so, so Trader's Blade is, is very dark in places, but it's also very idealistic in places. And and part of that's just timing. It just happened to be that people were looking for that then. And we, you know, and when I was shopping Spellsinger, it just turned out that there was a feeling like, you know, we want a new kind of series that's dealing with magic and dealing with what it's like to grow up around magic and, and things like that. So in a sense, it's funny, though, like, I guess when I when I try to explain Spellsinger to people now, I sort of say, you know, it's sort of like the reverse Harry Potter. I mean, imagine instead of discovering that you're like the greatest mage of all time, you discover you live in a society where everybody where magic is the most important thing. And yours is uh, pathetically bad. Um, <laughs> you know, what would you do? And and uh, instead of uh, encountering Obi-Wan Kenobi to come and teach you the ways of the forest, imagine that you're mentored more by a uh, female gambling Han Solo who uh, who's trying to teach you that magic isn't everything and you got to learn how to survive on your wits. And so Spellslinger, although there's lots of magic, it's also about it's also about what it's like to not be the chosen one. And I think that that so because when, when I was first asked, you know, would you would you write a, a young adult novel? I was very uh, sensitive to the fact of like, what am I saying to people about life? Like, I guess I, I really was partly Spellslinger is like me writing back in time to my 15, 16 year old self. And, and I don't know what you guys were like when you're. 15 or 16 but 15 or 16 is when i discovered that i was definitely not the chosen one uh it's when i discovered i was never going to be the best looking i was never going to be the smartest i was never going to be the strongest i wasn't even going to have the best personality and people tend to sort of drift into one of two ways when when they come face to face with that especially when you're like the kind of kid that grows up going i just know i'm going to find a portal into another world and be a great sword fighter soon people tend to either drift into going ah you know that's not what life's about and i'll just live a mediocre life and it'll be fine or they they just sort of become kind of lost in waiting right like i just know it'll happen I'll just keep waiting. I know I'm secretly the chosen one and they wait and they wait and they wait. And you can really burn a life out that way. It's why things like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons can be fantastic uh, as a both a social activity and a creative activity. But it can also be a bit of a trap if that becomes your vehicle for adventure in your life. And so so I wanted to write when I was writing Spellslinger, I wanted to write about like, what do you do when you figure out that you're not the chosen one? How do you if you if you realize you're not special, that it's not that being special isn't something that just gets handed to you genetically by your parents. And so that's what it's about. It's about wrestling with those issues and, and figuring out how to become someone who's special, even when you know the odds are against you. What what stood out to me from what you said was uh, that the person's magic isn't that great, which I think is cool because you're dealing because usually it's like the magician, like you said, is the greatest that's ever lived. And that's the story that we're telling. But how do you think this will appeal to the perceived audience of young adults, the people who maybe maybe they are realizing, you know, no one's no one's really special and you just have to figure out your own way through life and find find the little the little things that are special about you. 
I don't, you know, I don't know, to be honest, uh, you know, they may hate it. You know, if you look at a lot of, there's a lot of great YA fiction out there that's incredibly popular. That's, that's all about the average underdog kid who suddenly discovers that they have special powers and that their parents who they thought didn't love them that much actually love them infinitely more than everyone else's parents. And also they're secretly rich. There's a lot of that out there and, and, and that stuff's, and some of it's fantastic, right? Um, yeah. because it, it just finds a way to be great. I don't know how to be great while doing that. My hope is that people will, will read it and think about the things about themselves that don't suddenly make them special, but how to put them together in a way that, that does make you unique. So that's, that's kind of what spell slinging is in, in the world of spell slinger. What a spell slinger is, is someone who's it's, it's almost a, it's almost a, a, an insult among Kellen's people. Like a spell slinger is like someone who, who barely has any magic at all. And they have to use different tricks to, to make it uh, more powerful than it would, than it, than it is. And so that's what his life's about. It's about, he's got to learn all the sort of tricks to, to stay alive and to, to be able to thrive in this world as, as he's dealing with the loss of what he thought was going to be his, his future as a great mage like his, like his mother and father. Um, and so everything for Kellen is sort of finding this alternate route, which is, which is what my life was about, which is, I suspect, what a lot of people's lives are about. It's not the route you thought you were going to get to take. It's not the one you saw on the movies. It's a different route, and you have to find a way to make it really cool. So, for example, you know, in this world, you know, having a familiar, like an animal servant uh, for a mage is like a big deal. And it's like this really cool thing. And everybody wants like a falcon, you know, amongst amongst <laughs> Kellen's, you know, the teenagers of Kellen's world. It's like, I want a falcon because they're cool and they'll be your servants and do this. And Kellen doesn't get that. He ends up with Rikus, who's like a blackmailing squirrel cat who's like, I will never be your familiar. I hate, you know, how dare you want to make me into your servant? I will consider being your business partner. And Kellen's like, I don't even know what you mean by business partner. And he's like, well, well, sometimes I want to steal things. And, you know, if you can sort of help me steal a few things here and there, well, I'll, I'll help you sort of save your family once in a while. And so it's all about that. It's just finding these different ways of getting through life. When he meets first meets Farius Parfax, who is this woman who comes into town who is totally dismissive of magic and mages and thinks that they're like children and, and isn't afraid of anybody, even though she doesn't have any magic. But she's always got a trick up her sleeve. And so she's always trying to teach him, like, look, you can't just sit there wishing you were better, wishing you were stronger. You have to find ways to survive in the world. You have to find ways to grow up and be, you know, she she's an interesting character because she's often telling him he's got to learn how to be a man. And he's like, you know, you're a woman. Why do you keep telling me I have to be a man? It's just because you you have to become an adult. And for you, that's going to be that's going to mean, you know, becoming a man. And, and, and you have to decide if you want to be a good one or not. And. And that means, you know, being true to your word. And it's not it's nothing to do with masculinity, especially it's more about adulthood. But these notions that that there's a certain kind of a magic to adulthood that we we've kind of lost, I think, in the last you know, 20, 30 years, you know, used because, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you remember, but, you know, when you're a kid, often you're like, God, I can't wait to be an adult. And then you become an adult and everything, especially advertising, is telling you how like being a kid is way better. You know, like all of our, our popular kind of memes are about like, oh, kids are more creative. Kids are more loving. Kids are more free. Kids are. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, no, I wasn't loving as a kid. I was an idiot. Like, I was selfish a lot of the time. I didn't care about other, you know, I, I didn't I didn't live this magical, mystical Peter Pan life that we've sort of created. So that's kind of what I don't know. So that's what I like about about writing about Kellen is is that's what he's constantly dealing with. So I think for I think what's fun about the book is that while the, there's lots of magic and banter and, and action, 
uh, an adventure to it. There's also an element of just exploring, like, what do you do when it turns out you're not who you thought you were going to be? And and that experience to me is, it's not just a teenage experience. It's, it's the experience of life all the time. And I'm sure you guys experience it as well. You're like, oh, well, now I'm this age and it's not what I thought it was going to be. And so do you just contract within yourself and go, well, who cares? I'll just make sure I have a nice car and a TV and I'll just, you know, settle for a mediocre life. Or do you push yourself harder to try to find a different path? Was it easy for you to find the voice that you were going to use for Spellslinger? Or do you kind of find yourself kind of talking to your 15-year-old self in order to ensure that this YA series is hitting those YA points that most YA titles usually have? Uh, well, I'm not really an expert in YA. And I actually don't think that most most really good YA writers think of themselves as experts in YA because that, that it almost starts from a presumption that there's like something wrong with teenage readers. You know what I mean? I was on a panel at, uh, at a convention recently that was all talking about YA. So it was a group of us who were writing who had YA series either out or coming out. And, and people just kept talking about how, well, you know, teenagers, you know, they treat everything as if it's the end of the world. And, you know, when they fall in love, they think it's the most important love of all time. And, and I, I'm somewhat belligerent by nature. And so I, I sort of said at the time, I think sometimes we, we treat teenagers as if they're unformed adults. But actually, there's an argument to be made that adults are broken teenagers. You know, if you think if you just go pure biologically, right, teenagers have got it all. They're the peak of, of you know, an 18, 17, 16, 17, 18 year old. They're kind of at the peak of biological function. And so maybe it's actually that when you're 16 and you fall in love and you think it's the most important thing in the world uh, and the greatest love there's ever been, maybe that's actually how it's supposed to be. And maybe when we get older and we get into this cynical, like, well, it's really a sort of a partnership, a companionship, you know, maybe that's what's broken, right? Maybe we're supposed to feel things intensely and, and powerfully. And, you know, I, I th think I said this at the time, you know, the bet, my best days as a human being are the days when I'm walking around going, my love with my wife is the greatest love that there's ever been. You know, like when you're in those moments, to me, that's when you feel like the most alive. So I try not to make a lot of presumptions about a YA market, if you will, and just assume that teenagers are pretty diverse. I mean, I've met, you know, I've met some people who are, you know, 12 or 13, and they're so smart. Like it's not, and not just, you know, we often talk about book smart, but no, they're just insightful. So you try to write in such a way that may, that the language you're you're not choosing to make the prose florid, like you're not trying to you're not trying to make your prose artificially poetic, if you will, or lyrical. But you're also not at all speaking down to somebody who's reading it. Yeah. So I don't think about reducing sentence structure or things like that. I mean, you know, you have great editors. You know, if you're lucky, you have a great editor who will figure out if you're going astray in one of those directions. To, to answer the question more fully, though, where I did get things wrong in early drafts is that sometimes I would make a mistake, which I think is trick is the trickiest part when you're an adult writing for writing a YA story, which is I would write as if it was an adult remembering their teenage years instead of writing as a teenager experiencing their teenage years. That is a much more complicated needle to thread than I ever thought. So my first few drafts of some of the opening scenes, people would be like, uh, you know, my editor would be like, man, you, you make Kellen sound like it's just so dark and dank and depressing and like life is horrible, you know, and, and I was like, yeah, but, you know, that's what, you know, that's what it feels like. And it's like, oh, no, that's not what it feels like. That's how you remember it. But at the time, it doesn't feel that way. At the time, it doesn't. It, it feels like there's big stakes to win or lose. 
And so you have to write more from that perspective of what what it's like in that moment and not how you what it's like to remember that moment. How far along are you in the Spellslinger series? Have you written a couple books or? Uh, oddly, book one and book five are done. I'm working on book two right now, which is due very shortly because they're coming out at two books a year. So the, the first one comes out in May and the second one, I think, comes out in September. Do you have like an outline for the entire series? Do you kind of have book six and kind of everything kind of mapped out? I do. I, um, I'm i not prone to doing that normally, but my editor at the time kind of wanted to know where this was going to go. And so she pushed me to th- sort of think a bit harder, both about the direction of the series and about the world itself. So because I tend to my notion of world building is you start a character in a dark cave and give him a flashlight <laughs> and only make as much world as you can see in the beam of the flashlight. But uh, but she sort of pushed me in. And it was good because it's kind of made it a richer a richer world and, and given it a stronger sense of direction of where it's going. So, yes, I know I know basically what happens in all six books. In fact, I know what happens in book seven, but we only they only wanted we're only going to do <laughs> six books at first. So I already sort of know what book seven would be about. We've got a busy uh, 2017 ahead. You've got Tyrant's Throne coming out in April. You've got Spellslinger dropping in May. You're a busy bee, Sebastian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, next year is going to be a crazy busy year uh, because, uh, yeah, as you say, uh, Tyrant's Throne in April, uh, Spellslinger in May, I think Shadow Black in uh, September. And then, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of promotional stuff that goes along with all of that. And uh, and I've got to, you know, write a second draft of a mystery novel that I wrote this year. Um that I, I hope to get out there soon. So a lot of a lot of writing, as is I'm sure the case for you guys with what was Splatter Elf and uh, and then Rob, whatever you're working on, because I know you're going to do some writing. I just do the fucking podcast now. I don't even write anything, guys. It's like your full time job. It's because there's a lot of money in podcasts. So yep, yeah. <laughs> that's why we do it. Yeah, fame and fortune. Cool, Sebastian. You're the only person that will name drop Splatter Elf on the show. Really? Appreciate that. Oh, it's my pleasure. You mean Brian Stavely doesn't have the courtesy to mention your flatter? <laughs> That's yeah. I wonder what's wrong with that guy. Maybe he's just insecure. <laughs> you know, I bet he's haunted by that uh, Morning Star Award, that awesome, cool, unparalleled, beautiful Morning Star Award when it sits on his shelf, and and yeah. he thinks, you know. I just, where will I ever get another award like this? Whereas I, you know, have a much uh, better future because having been nominated for tons of stuff, but never won, I could still look forward to actually winning something. So really, it's just sad for Brian. He's having a tough time, all those bestsellers and awards. I really really love Brian. I don't say that often about authors. I would like to challenge you to, for the next uh, 30 seconds, to talk about your love of Brian (laughs) as a person and to put that in the show. For 30 seconds, talk about how much I love Brian Stavely. Yep. Tell me all the things you love about Brian Stavely, Phil. There you go. It's a mini 30-second geek out for Phil. And are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Go. Okay, so Brian Stavely was one of the first authors I connected with on Google+, Plus, which is a graveyard, I'm assuming now. Uh, but uh, we talked about Mongolia and then the fact that I work in, or work in Japan and how that really helped his writing. And I thought that was cool because we had something in common. We both work on our writing in another country. And I also think it's cool. He has big giant falcons in his stories because I want a big giant hawk and I wish I could have a giant hawk in, in my life. And That's- he's really, he's really nice. And he said nice things about me and I want to give him a hug if I meet him <laughs> one day. 
And I, and so, I think with that, you've pretty much assured that you will never meet him in person. Because <laughs> <laughs> now he's going to hear that and be a tiny bit freaked out. Now I hate you because you ruined my chances. <laughs> exactly. You're now my mortal enemy. Poor Brian. He must just be completely confused when he hears something. Like, Why are these guys talking about me? It's like, I've never met any of them in person. No, he is an ex- he is an extremely nice guy. I've chatted with him once or twice on social media briefly and... Yeah, hey, definitely. He deserves he deserves all of that creepy love in your heart, Phil. Hey, hey, but listen, I have creepy love for you also. Cool. Did you need forty five seconds to? Do you want forty five seconds love? for that? <laughs> I I think I'll be okay without, but I don't want to hold you back, like a, from expressing yourself in whatever ways you you feel is important to you. Maybe we'll talk about it when you come back on the show, maybe in April or Mayish, when you've got all those books coming out, we'll get you back on and Phil can just wax eloquent on how much he loves you for at least 45 seconds. That no. sounds like a some plan. No, I'm not doing that. Um, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post on Twitter every day one reason, <laughs> one reason I love Sebastian. That sounds like an excellent plan. Hashtag I love Sebastian. There you go. If that doesn't sell books, I don't know what will. It's going to fucking sell a shit ton of books. I can tell you that. <laughs> Sebastian, always a blast to have you on the show. Thanks again so much for joining us today. Folks can find you online at dickestell.com is your author website. And then are you Twittering or Facebooking or anything like that? Or Yeah, I'm on Twitter as at DeCastell, so D-E-C-A-S-T-E-L-L. And I'm on Facebook as uh, Sebastian DeCastell. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. And I, uh, I'm even on Goodreads. I even answer Goodreads questions. Yeah. Even. even. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm honestly, I'm just still so honored when anybody bothers to write me that I always try to write back. Unless it's Phil. Because some of that stuff doesn't make any sense. I don't know how to reply to it. Shit. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write stuff about how much I love you as a person and a writer and everything, but I'm going to Google translate it into five languages and then I'm going to post it on Twitter. So it's going to make no sense. (laughs) I look forward to whatever happens when Interpol catches up with you. Because I'm telling you, you're going to just unintentionally end up putting out a five word code sequence. That's like the trigger for some kind of strange, uh, Al Qaeda offshoot. And they're going to be like, you were the one that triggered that attack. Oh, you're going to oh be like, no. My life is like a sitcom or something. Yeah. And then you're so busy writing, you don't really have any con appearances coming up in the near future where people can be creepy in, in person. No, I just, I, yeah, I was just uh, doing a whole bunch of stuff this year. I was at uh, Easter Con and um, I was at uh, Nine Worlds and then I was at World Con um, so that I could not win a Hugo award. And, uh, and, um, yeah, so I've been doing a lot of it. I, I will for sure be doing some stuff in 2017. Um, I might be back at Easter con. I don't know yet in the UK. I might be back at nine worlds again. I'm thinking about going to world con again. Um, which cause it's in Helsinki. Yeah. And I figure maybe I could not win a Hugo twice. Well, my plan is to be at Worldcon 2018 in San Jose. So if you still have a job writing by then, we can definitely maybe hang up. Sure. Hey, do you ask all your interviewees that? Do you you sort of put it that way to your interviews? Like, well, you know, 2018, if you still have a job. 
Maybe we'll see you then. Like with that just slight note of uncertainty in your voice. Is that when you had Brian Stavely on, did you say, well, in 2018, if you're still writing, maybe I'll talk to you then. Excellent. We only, we only do that for Canadians, actually. It's, we, we did that. We did that to Fletcher also. Oh, really? That's that's not good. You're going to get in some trouble there. Canadians are only polite on the surface, man. Underneath, we're like a seething, roiling ocean of vengeance. You don't think I know that? I work with Canadians. <laughs> well, but you're in a weird spot. So Canadians are always polite at home and then and then very modest at home. And then as soon as they're traveling somewhere else, we slap like the Canadian flag on everything we own and mm-hmm. can't stop talking about how much better our country is than everybody else's country. So there's definitely a weird kind of uh, nativism that, that strikes Canadians when we go abroad. Yeah. I've, not, I've noticed yeah. that. It is weird, isn't it? I find myself doing it too. Like I'll be talking to somebody and uh, you know, like, they'll be talking about, you know, I'll, uh, you know, it, well, you'll ask them a question. Oh, where's the nearest doctor's office? They go over there. And then instead of saying, thank you, you're like, well, you know, our healthcare system's way better, you know, or, <laughs> oh, or, oh yeah, I really need to go. My, my arm's bleeding. Yeah, but in Canada, <laughs> listen, our arms don't bleed in Canada. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, our our our, our blood instantly coagulates <laughs> if, if we're wounded. Our skin cells just repair themselves. Uh, we we just we put maple syrup on our bodies and heals all wounds instantly. With that, the creepiness has come to an end. Sebastian Dickestel, thank you so much for joining us again on the show. Great having you on. Best of luck with Spellslingers and Saints Blood and Tyrant's Throne and the awesomely good fantasy goodness you have coming out. Thanks again for joining us and and, uh, good luck with everything, sir. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Hashtag I love Sebastian. Check that shit out. You can find us online at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings podcast or on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. And be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time.